Pasa Mufasa. Welcome to the Mycopreneur Podcast. This is a podcast about people solving problems with mushrooms. I'm your host, Dennis Walker. Let's get down to business. Hey, Pasa Mufasa, Andrew D'Angelo, co-founder of The Last Prisoner Project, among many other notable ventures. Welcome to the Michaelpreneur Podcast. How are things in your corner of the world today, Andrew? Well, things are great. We've gotten some much needed rain here in the Bay Area, so I'm thankful for that. And um, life's good. I love the Bay Area. I'm a graduate of the University of San Francisco, and my five years in San Francisco, living a stone's throw from the hate and the panhandle, informed a lot of my work that I'm doing now in the media realm and also in drug policy reform and activism, et cetera. So looking forward to touching base about that. So I'm going to hit you with a deep dive right off the bat, Andrew. And that's the cultural climate in the United States and numerous other countries around the world is changing rapidly and enabling us to have these honest conversations about cannabis and psychedelics and a path forward for meaningfully integrating them into mainstream culture and into the world of legitimate business. And I know you have a lot of experience with this. So something that we, we've seen happen with cannabis gradually over many years, and I've never personally been a part of the legal cannabis industry outside my role as a dutiful consumer, But one thing I've repeatedly heard, Andrew, since starting the podcast is the way that cannabis legalization and commercialization got it wrong and how a lot of mom and pop operations and small hold farms, et cetera, have been muscled out by the corporatization process. And I know a lot of people that we probably both know mutually are very invested and not letting that happen with psychedelics. So I'm curious to hear what you have to say, Andrew, about how the psychedelic community can avoid making some of the same mistakes that were made and the legalization and commercialization of cannabis? Fantastic first question, super relevant. California was really the best example and the most extreme example of what went right with medical cannabis and what went wrong with adult use and or corporate cannabis. So the medical program, as as your listeners may know, in 1996, we passed medical in California and and, and Everybody thought we were crazy (laughs) to do any kind of legalization, but it was the height of the AIDS crisis and um, people were dying and and had been for quite some time. So, um, excuse me. Um, So there was a real urgency to get people medicine that can extend life and to, to make the end of life a lot more pleasant or somewhat more pleasant for folks. And so um, it was kind of the Wild West after that law passed because um, there was no regulation. The local people didn't want to regulate. The state didn't want to regulate. And so the only framework was the actual statute that the voters voted on. And that was a very broad statute that allowed... Um, people that were both well and and not so well intentioned to get in to open dispensaries uh, and start, you know, slinging medical cannabis. Uh, And and then shortly about five years passed and and the regulators, specifically the attorney general at that time, Jerry Brown, and cities like the city of Oakland, San Francisco, here in the Bay Area, they, they, those two cities really pioneered regulating and licensing dispensaries 
uh, and Jerry Brown, the Attorney General, released a set of guidelines that he expected people to follow if they didn't want to get busted by the state police. And um, one of those guidelines was that you were to operate as a nonprofit. So you could not have retained earnings. You couldn't take investments. You, you, you also couldn't get 501c3 status from the federal government um, to operate as a true nonprofit, but you had to operate as a nonprofit. This, a lot of people did not like that who are entrepreneurs and, and wanted to make profits, but what it did, one of the good things it did was it kept the level of exuberance in the, in the market low and uh, people, the corporate folks, the, the, the venture capitalists, the hedge funds, all those guys and gals, <laughs> um, they did, couldn't get in. They couldn't get in. There was no way for them to get in because they, they don't do nonprofit, they do for-profit. So there was no reason for them to get in. And then when we passed adult use, and when I say we, at that time in 2016, it's important to remember California lost an adult use initiative in 2010. And right after that loss in 2010, the federal government came in and started busting people pretty viciously. And we didn't want that to happen again. But we had to make a lot of compromises to, to get on the ballot and, and then to win and get support from folks like the local people and League of City and Counties and Gavin Newsom and, you know, heavy hitters in the Democratic Party. And those compromises created a terrible framework for small businesses, legacy uh, indigenous um, and other black and brown entrepreneurs who have been selling weed in the medical market quite well and successfully. Uh, and, 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 and certainly in the gray and legacy markets that were still quite robust and, and folks were, were doing it there too. Um, but the for profits was one of the compromises we had to make to get, to get adult use passed. And, and that really opened up a very large market. California is the biggest weed consumers and market in the world is <laughs> here in California. More people are, Everybody, pretty much everyone has cannabis in their life in one shape or form in California and most of the big cities, um, and whether they admit it or not. <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, it's a very big market and, and some $11 billion a year. And so that's a very exuberant number for people that like to chase profits to come in and do that. The other thing that was terrible was, you know, the state started regulating cannabis and over-regulating it and the local people started over-regulating it and over-taxing it. Um, so, and the adult use framework rebranded cannabis, not as a medicine anymore, but as something more recreational, quote unquote, I hate that word, but in, in any case, um, that's sort of the frame of it now. And um, we've had a lot of corporate folks come in and, and take over companies like my old company, Harborside, got taken over by 
by by was a publicly traded corporate company now, and um, some of us had to go that route to to save our employees and our teams and our brands. And some people just went extinct, and some people you know are still hanging in there as independents, um, barely. Um, you know, I was at an independent farm yesterday, and you know they're talking about how we're going to meet payroll in two days, and this is a pretty successful farm. You know, and um, so things are tough right now in for small businesses and certainly anyone, you know, that's social equity or indigenous uh, here in California. Most of the other states made similar mistakes to California, Illinois, Massachusetts, allowing local people to ban dispensaries or allowing regulators to overregulate it. And, and so now we have this big problem in industry wide where, you know, a lot of people can't get in or were disrupted um, getting in by the by the corporate folks. So there, there are definitely ca cautionary tales um, for psychedelics in that I'm I'm I think it may be too late to, to make psychedelics nonprofit um, because you already have publicly traded psychedelic companies. Um, so. Um, but um, but that that was one very powerful tool that that helped keep things a little bit more authentic and, and, and allow the people who have been carrying the medicine for decades and, and sometimes multi-generations here in California and all over with the psychedelic medicine, plant medicine. Um, you know, we our job is to figure out a way to do our activism so that these frameworks allow for our people to have their spot and you know i think the corporate folks have their spot too but but capitalism has a way of rewarding capital at the expense of uh output <laughs> shall we say um and 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 that's a paradigm you know hopefully the plant medicine will get people off of this sort of transactional win at all cost vibe that is sort of permeating not just our little world of cannabis legalization or psychedelic legalization but everywhere you know you get all the mom and pop stores and all the industries and all you know have had a real hard time the last, for several decades as big box and centralization even you know online sales and so forth. There's just been a lot of disruption culture-wide, as you mentioned. So, so those are some of the things we learned. Those are some of the pain points that we're having right now. And it's, it's, I think if we can just be super mindful how we bring this, these compounds and medicines to the world, follow the Rick Doblin vision. <laughs> um, and, and he's the, founder of MAPS. Your, your listeners probably know that name pretty well. And if we do that, everything, I, you know, there's no way we can take these compounds to the whole world without some harms happening. And, you know, there's going to be people who misuse them. So we have to have um, a good solution for those folks. Well, thank you very much for the comprehensive and concise 
detailing of such an important topic and a hot button topic nonetheless, especially now that the most recent Decrim California ballot initiative has failed to make the ballot, which opens the door for a restructuring and a more sensible people first policy for bringing psychedelics and entheogens to the world. So I know that's a subject of much debate right now, and you can't keep all the people happy all the time. I'm very aware of this. So I'd love to shift gears and talk about the rise of Cali Sober, speaking of mindfulness. And myself as a lifelong California native, it's interesting to see this cultural shift away from the more deleterious social behaviors of alcohol and drug abuse, to which I am no stranger, and towards a more sensible and conscious social use of substances like marijuana and psilocybin mushrooms, etc., that can potentially support a healthy lifestyle and healthy socialization routines. I've been a California resident my whole life. I've used cannabis and psilocybin mushrooms in many a social situation over the last 15 years, though I didn't know there was a name for what many of us have naturally gravitated to already. So, Andrew, can you drop some intel on what Cali Sober means to you and why it could be the next billion dollar industry? I love Cali Sober. I learned about Cali Sober a couple few years ago when Playboy asked me to write about it. And I had not heard of the term. And so I did some research and I found that the term was coined. Well, you know, all these origin stories of terms have more than one origin story. Um, but generally speaking, the, the, the term has been popularized by millennials and, and younger folk, new generations, should I say, of thinkers. Um, I'm a generation Xer, so these folks came up behind me. We called it harm reduction. So, and harm reduction is just when someone's at a party and everyone's drinking and you're Cali sober and they come to you and they say, would you like a glass of wine? Instead of saying, it's a lot more fun to say, no, thank you. I'm Cali sober than it is to say, no, thank you. I'm harm reduction. <laughs> um, uh, so I think it's actually an evolution and a way for the concept of harm reduction. I, for me, Cali sober and harm reduction are the same thing. Harm reduction um, came out in the 1980s when every, the crack ed, ed, epidemic was happening and people were just in really bad shape with crack cocaine. And so the idea was smoke a joint, don't smoke a crack pipe. And, you know, we even had T-shirts made to that to that um, with that message on it and campaigns that were done both at the grassroots and, you know, academic level harm reduction also came out of even 12-step programs and academic circles where people were trying to figure out how do we get better outcomes? Because 12-step programs, only only about 25, 30% of the people does it work for. So how can we do better than that to get people functioning and perhaps even high functioning? And so this idea of some people just can't be 100% sober sober. They, they, they're just... Drugs are fun and, you know, they like to have fun and so they do that or they're in pain and they want to kill their pain and so they do that and, and to say stop doing it is just not practical but to say, hey, do something less harmful, get rid of this alcohol that you're doing or reduce it, you know, get rid of maybe things that are clearly harming you, whatever that you is and whatever that thing is, it can be weed. It can be psychedelics that's harmful too. 
um, you know, uh, there's misuse of everything. Um, and so misuse is the issue. It's not so much the drugs, right? So, so what Cali sober and harm reduction is, it's like, if you call yourself Cali sober, it probably means you have cannabis in your life, maybe on a daily basis, like I do. And you, you may have psychedelics in your life on an occasional basis, like I do. And some people have a little bit of alcohol in their life still, you know, or a little bit of whatever in their life still and, and, and call themselves Cali sober because they are in control. They are functioning. They're going to work. They're being there for their kids. They're being there for their families. And, you know, maybe they do drug X, Y, or Z uh, once a month to let loose with their wife when the kids are at an overnight somewhere. And, you know, that's great. <laughs> no one's being harmed. The harm there is very low. Okay. So, and, and, and that's the idea behind Cali sober. And, and, you know, generally the Cali part it stands for California and that's where weed and psychedelics are becoming increasingly more popularized and spreading across the country, like medical cannabis legalization did and adult use, you know, although Colorado and Washington beat us to adult use, but we were shortly thereafter. And, um, and so that's the Cali part of it. And the sober part of it is just, you know, it keeps, it keeps the, the, whatever the demons are <laughs> away and, and, and it, and it keeps maybe some other things in, uh, that are, are less harmful like cannabis. So that's the idea. I think it's great. I love the idea. I'm trying to popularize it more and more. I think it's the idea is here to save lives. Remember, a lot of people are dying from overdoses and alcohol. And, you know, that's that's the whole idea behind Cali Sober. And I understand there's a large issue with fentanyl being un inadvertently present or there's a large issue with fentanyl right now. And that's not something I ever had to contend with, to my knowledge, a decade ago when I was more interested in more of those party and hard substances. And that's another thing. Now I know that there's a handful of companies, I think Dance Safe is one of them, making mobile testing kits. So I think that ties into harm reduction. I used to be a high school teacher and you know, the word through the grapevine reaches everyone. So you hear about these different substances that 14 and 15 year olds are using and taking. And I just thought about not only the need for uh, drug testing kits for safety that you can test something and know what's in it and what's not in it, but also the huge need for a comprehensive drug education program that's in touch with the times for schools. Because I come from the generation of going to elementary school in the 90s and I remember the D.A.R.E. campaigns and what a failed, sad, shameful campaign that was in a lot of ways and yet there has been no successor to it. So that's something I've been bringing up in conversation with people. I have a lot of connections in the education world and it's almost like this kind of this hot button subject no one wants to touch. You want to talk to the kids about drugs. You want to talk to them about harm reduction, but there's so much red tape in the way about what you can say, et cetera. I just think that's a huge press, pressing need that someone needs to jump on board and bring meaningful drug education to high school and middle school and even elementary school students. You're so right. If we're going to eventually get to a world where all drugs are legal, and available to adults, what we'll find is that the potency of drugs will go down and 
the purity of them will go up. And if we, but to get to that world, you can't get to that world overnight because people aren't, don't have the education, like you said. So we can't just legalize. We also have to increase funding and find, find the educational paradigm we're going to replace DARE with. Um, and also increase treatment. Um, people, there's a lot of people today who are strung out on whatever, whatever, drug X and, or substance X, and they can't get help. They want help. They can't get help. There's just not enough room in the current drug treatment paradigm. So there's several paradigms that we have to transform all at once, education, treatment, and you know what and social justice and activism uh those three things all have to happen at the same time and as you pointed out they're not and you know it's hard for our community to get access into the public schools like you mentioned there's just red tape involved and it's enormously difficult to do that um so we somehow we're going to have to create some of these models outside of that system show that they work and then um bring them into the schools there's this great woman named pat deming with the harm reduction therapy center in san francisco and they do some of that work and they're starting to collect some of that data and once we demonstrate hey this 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 paradigm works better than yours <laughs> here's the data <laughs> what do you want to do um, how do you want to craft your public policy? Do you want to hold on to some ethnocentric lie from the past? Or do you want to follow this data that's telling us that we have to educate our kids about drugs in a completely different way so they have knowledge that they can trust and believe in and, and make their own decisions? And then if that kid should grow up or even be a kid and get into trouble treatment is there there's a there's a safety net to catch that person or child or adult or even senior seniors get in trouble with substance abuse all the time so we need to create these nets underneath folks we need to put the knowledge in our brains right in the first place uh, and then you know have laws that reflect that we have a new attitude towards drugs in our society. And we've had a few CEOs and industry leaders on the podcast who have talked about the necessity for sober data sets and for having data-informed approaches. And as an example of that, the U.S. military, even in some of their most conservative factions, is starting to take seriously this notion of psychedelic-assisted therapies because the data tells them that it works and because what's currently in place does not work. The opiates and the alcohol, et cetera, does not work, and that's abundantly clear. So I think it's really important that we have folks who are soberly analyzing the data sets. And in many cases, I've talked to people who say, I might not even personally use these substances or the doctors potentially prescribing these substances might not even use them, but they'd feel confident enough to prescribe them to their patients. So that's another angle that I think is worth bearing in mind. To tie back to the conversation about drug culture and the workplace, I'm curious uh, about weed testing for jobs. And I think that's something you've written about before. It's something I've personally experienced only once to my 
to my knowledge, where I had to take a random drug test for an employer. But I've got plenty of friends who have city jobs, government jobs, etc., who are still being drug tested and randomly drug tested for weed. And their employment is contingent upon them not consuming cannabis, which is amazing to the point where I've even had friends in a little backstage room that was being hotboxed that said, I have to leave because I can't get this in my system because I like it's 20 fucking 22. This is absurd. So I know you have some hot takes on this. I just love to hear about, do you think that this is uh, maybe something that is going to be phased out hopefully? And do you see any evidence of that or is drug testing for weed in the workplace in some situations here to stay? Well, we're seeing some movement on this. Amazon recently announced they're no longer going to screen people for cannabis, except those that the federal government requires that they screen for, like drivers. So there are laws on the federal books that require people that work in transportation and other fields, you have to pass a uh, urinalysis test. Um, sometimes they're random, sometimes they're pre-employment, sometimes they're post-employment and they're scheduled and sometimes they're random. It's, it's a terrible scourge that's, that's sort of been around since the 1980s. In the 1980s, this was one of the things Reagan got done was urinalysis testing. And we took it all the way to the Supreme Court, arguing that it's an unreasonable search and seizure to, to, analyze someone's urine against their will. We thought that was an unreasonable search and seizure. Um, it sounds unreasonable to me to this day. If your own bodily fluids are not yours, what is? So um, it's just, uh, and we lost at the Supreme Court. And so it's been with us ever since. We have a shortage of workers right now. We have an inflation crisis. We have a supply chain crisis. 72,000 truckers were denied licenses to drive trucks between January 2020 and now. It's probably a little bit higher than that since I wrote that article a couple months ago. And it's a disgrace that we are not allowing truckers, that, that it's even part of all your analysis testing. The standard should be, are you impaired on the job or not? And I don't care what, again, we're not going to practice drug exceptionalism. We're going to say whatever it is, substance X. If you're impaired on the job, you get disciplined. You go home, you stop working, you get disciplined. I did it all the time at Harborside. I didn't care. I gave people a room to smoke weed in. (laughs) I gave them a room to smoke weed in, but you couldn't be impaired. Okay? Everybody was a patient. I had to provide... It was better than having them drive around the neighborhood and getting pulled over smoking weed. So um, that's what we did. But you could not come to your shift impaired. If you did, we sent you home. You got a write-up. Eventually, you'd lose your job for that, even at Harborside, because it's not fair to the customer to be impaired while you're while you're working. It's just not an appropriate standard. We have to have certain standards in the workplace. So. So that's how I feel about urinalysis testing. I mean, I, I, I went through this myself. I wrote about it in the article when I was in college. I, I flunked several, <laughs> not just one, but a couple different urinalysis tests for weed. For summer jobs, working for Amtrak. My dad was an executive for Amtrak. And 
it was really embarrassing that I flunked those tests and it was embarrassing for my dad. And it was, it caused us friction and tension. Uh, and I tried hard to pass them, <laughs> but I just couldn't, you know, I'm in college. Okay. I'm, I'm selling weed. I'm a weed person. And, you know, I, it, it, I would have had to stop smoking weed for a lot longer than I did to pass those tests. So, um, that, I had a little bit of personal experience with this and that was again, 35 years ago. So, and, 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 and workers are really suffering the it's, it, it, so many people stopped having a relationship with cannabis because of this year analysis testing. And it's a shame. Uh, you know, I meet people all the time say, Oh yeah, I used to smoke in college, but then the year analysis, I had got a job and it was year analysis. I couldn't do it. Like you said, people walk out of the room when you light a joint because they don't want the secondhand smoke to get that they you know to fail a year analysis test and it's a terrible scourge on the country i am i think amazon i think what amazon did is going to motivate quite a few other big companies to do the same thing and and it's going to take a while i think it's going to take a while before we get rid of it altogether um and so yes i think in, if you're a truck driver or you know, operate some kind of heavy machinery or, you know, you're going to probably be pissing in a cup for a while and years. I don't know. I hope not decades. Lord, have mercy. I hope not decades, but you know, years, some number of years, once the feds legalize weed, I think that goes away. Um, but who knows when that'll be. Sure. And in the meantime, there will probably be automation of those jobs before we allow truckers to smoke weed legally. So we've been talking a lot about macro policy and these kind of heavy hitter questions. And I'm going to scale it back a little bit and let's move to the individual realms. I'd love to hear about your personal induction into the world of psilocybin mushrooms and psychedelics, etc. You mentioned that you were living in San Francisco in the 90s, and I'm sure you've got some colorful stories about all that. But I'd just love to hear, how did you first get sucked into this whole universe? Well, my older brother, Steve, I was very blessed i had an older brother who was already 10 years older than me so by the time i was a teenager my older brother was well into his 20s and was already a cannabis activist was already a psychonaut was already you know heavily oriented around alternative culture so i got a great introduction and and had a great guide into this world and once i started taking cannabis on the regular in high school, it, it, you know, I, I, I distinctly remember we were smoking weed in his basement one night and he looked at me and said, yeah, I think, I think you're ready for acid. It's time for acid. And we talked a long time, you know, and I had to read books and I had to do research. And my brother was very serious about making sure that I just didn't drop acid one day. I, I had to school myself on what all of that meant and and then you know the day came and we got to do that experience together and i quickly learned what all the fuss was about <laughs> and um and then my first few experiences with my brother so he would take me we we usually went out to nature and into the woods and the mountains of west virginia other places like that we grew up on the east coast in the washington dc area so you'd often go to the mountains or the woods, and, and that was a good place to learn about 
psychedelics. I think that's certainly where I had my first mushroom experience. And and then shortly thereafter, a year or two after that, I went off to college, and and that's where I became the guide for other folks um, at school. And and I went to way far away in Southern California is where I went to college, and we'd go out to Joshua Tree Desert, Joshua Tree National Park out in the desert, and that's where we would trip. So. It was always a creed that to be responsible with the medicine, to share it in a good way, to be in the right set and setting. All those things I learned very early on. I was very blessed. I didn't have to learn that the hard way. And then by the time I went to my first Grateful Dead concert in college, you know, I was ready to have that experience with psychedelics in a in a arena with you know six other six thousand other people doing the same thing uh, and. And, um, and so that was my introduction, uh, to psychedelics. And, you know, when you've had psychedelics in your life for decades, like I have, you, you, you have great experiences, you have hard experiences. They're all learning experiences. Sometimes the hard experiences get you to take a little vacation, uh, for, from psychedelics for, you know, a couple of years. Um, um, or I don't know, maybe not that long. <laughs> If your name is D'Angelo, maybe not that long, but, um, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's a, it's a journey on a long path and, and I've learned, I've learned more from psychedelics in, in the areas of connection to things that are larger than me, being a part of the web of life that, you know, I'm not, I'm much more than my thoughts and my feelings. And that, you know, life is precious and, and, and we should honor, honor all of those things as much as we can while we're here because nobody gets out of here alive. <laughs> and these compounds, especially now, but have through the ages been used by human beings to deepen our experiences and connections with each other while on the planet and and then pass that tradition on so that future generations can do the same thing. So we're in that renaissance now. And, you know, because we've, we've had a long time of not so much um, multi-generational use of psychedelics, but that, that, that at least not <laughs> in the Western world. And so people that look like you and me, you know, kind of stopped tripping there for a while. Um, now we're getting back into it and, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful that, you know, Rick Doblin says by 2070, if we do our job right and we, you know, get these compounds out to the world that, that humanity will literally transcend into more spiritual beings. And I really believe that to be true. And I believe that vision to be one that I'm willing to work the rest of my life on and, and. And I think, you know, so I'm very hopeful. I'm, I'm so hopeful with psychedelics, I'm, and I'm excited. I think the psychedelic folks have done a really good job bringing these compounds into a medical and therapeutic definition for all of us to consider and internalize. Here, here, that makes two of us willing to dedicate our lives to this advancement of the cause. 
And you were very fortunate to have an elder who helped to shepherd you through those early momentous experiences because a lot of us lacked that and a lot of people still lack it. We don't have those rites of passage in many senses in the Western culture. And when I first showed up at USF, I had done my due diligence reading about mushrooms and food of the gods and Arrowwood trip reports. And I was very slow to adapt to that and to bring that into my life. And I was fortunate to have my first macrodose solo experience when I was still in high school and to know more or less what I was getting into after having read, you know, Terrence McKenna was kind of the only name that comes to mind of anybody who I who resonated with me where I said, OK, this is something potentially very profound and important, and I should devote the time and energy and respect that it deserves to have this experience. And it delivered on the money. However, when I got to USF, I made that classic mistake of thinking all the other pantheon of substances must be like this one. So when the 2CB came out and the MDMA and the LSD and this and that and the other, you know, I was kind of lost for a while and trying to figure out how to integrate them into my life. And that's been a journey. I'd like to think that I'm at a point where I understand what substances work for me and why I do them and have a game plan, et cetera, when doing these things. But for a lot of people, that's just not the case. We don't have a sensible policy or a way of bringing them into our lives other than kind of just going for it and just trusting who we're with. Obviously, that conversation's starting to change, but I, I came to know quite a few people you might refer to as psychedelic casualties living on Haight Street and in Golden Gate Park and whatnot. And you could really quickly see, man, the psychedelic revolution not necessarily being handled the way that we would like to see it. You know, this 2070 spiritual evolution that you just discussed. We're not there yet. We've got a lot of work to do. So, and thank you for your role in doing that. So another question as an extension of the last one, I always love to talk about music. And you mentioned the Grateful Dead, maybe a deadhead, maybe just have been to a few concerts, but I'd love to hear who are some of your favorite artists, some of the artists and musicians who helped define you and who do you like to listen to when you are on one of those D'Angelo trips? Well, certainly I'm a deadhead <laughs> uh, and still try to see all the different incarnations that of the band as much as I can. And really it's about the scene at these events. It's about the people and it's about group tripping <laughs> um, in that setting, which generally is safe. Um, you have people like dance safe at these settings and you have, you know, other support mechanisms at, at these settings for people to make sure that their medicine's right and pure. And, and also if, if, for, if, if they happen to get into a more introspective place, a place where maybe being with thousands of people is not the right vibe, there's a place for them to go to where they can be a little bit taken care of by, by somebody who's been trained to do that. So, um, so that community is, is, has always been there for me, but, but my taste in music now is really eclectic. Uh, and I recently had an experience with John Coltrane's Love Supreme uh, studio album uh, that, if you don't know, it's a four-part. Oh, it, it lasts almost an hour, I don't know, 40 minutes to an hour It's of, of one continual piece of music. And it, I really connected to that piece of music under the influence of, of psilocybin, and it was kind of a religious experience. Uh, for me. And, and as I learned more about that piece of music, there's actually a church in San Francisco that is 
called the Love Supreme Church, and it, it actually um, is all about that piece of music and 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 how that it's a very spiritual, you know, love is supreme, and and that's one of the things psychedelics sort of and particularly psilocybin teaches is just the the glue that holds all life together in the universe is love, so. That was one piece of music that's a lot different than the Grateful Dead that I, I, I listened to. Um, Miles Davis is in there. Um, Sun Ra is in there. So all those psychedelic jazz artists I'm getting turned on to now. Maybe it's my age. <laughs> but um, uh, it's really great music to listen to. Um, and then, like you, I kind of late 80s and 90s there's a lot of electronic dance music that was very psychedelic in those days even there was like trip hop and and psychedelic hip-hop whether it be the diggable planets or you know even you know the beastie boys and there's a lot of fun music to listen to delight i used to love to listen to delight under the influence mdma um and so you know there uh, some of that edm music that was really psychedelic or even the hip-hop is is a lot of fun to listen to particularly with perhaps the you know the mdmas and mdas of the world um uh and anything that's really fine musicianship you know african music or indian music or sitar music anything that um is really fantastic musicianship that's instrumental music that doesn't have, for some reason instrumental music while I'm tripping is 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 something that uh, I can get lost in a little bit more than than vocals that are you know talking about a specific story or a specific theme I kind of get lost in that story or lost in that theme uh, so um, and and there's nothing like dub reggae music, you know, or or or, or even some of the reggae masters. You know, we just lost uh, Lee Scratch Perry. He died not too long ago. I love Lee Scratch Perry. One of the greatest concerts I ever saw was Lee Scratch Perry because he, was, he improvised almost the entire concert, and it was amazing that someone could improvise like that. And it was just he was so in touch with the life force and that magic element that we can get in touch with sometimes he was in touch with it all the time. <laughs> um, and he was like in this perpetual state of tripping almost. Um, but some people have that. Some people, you know, are just, just have that gift, that talent and lots of different music. Uh, but, but all of it groovy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm familiar with all of the artists that you just name dropped, and in particular, Diggable Planets. That's a nice one. I've seen their newest incarnation is called Shabazz Palaces, and I had a friend open for them, so I got to go up to that concert. But living in San Francisco spoiled me in a lot of ways because it had all of the eclectic music all the time. And a lot of free shows, too, like Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival in Golden Gate Park. One of the greatest gifts to humanity. And for anyone who doesn't know the story, Warren Hellman was a multi-billionaire in the Bay Area who died and left a trust to continue the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival for 40 years after his death. So the festival is free. I don't know if you've ever been, Andrew, but it's amazing. 
they get tons of heavy hitter artists who curate their own stages. And I've seen I've seen Elvis Costello there. I've seen Amadou and Miriam, who are a blind couple from Mali that make extraordinary music. I've seen Manu Chao there. Tons of other amazing artists. But one story in particular that stands out, a musical experience involving psychedelics, was probably the last meaningful, impactful LSD experience I had. And that was at the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival probably 2013 and I remember it because I hadn't taken LSD in about five years since I got some questionable LSD in college because I didn't have the dance safe kit or any of that stuff and you know I wasn't really sure what was in it so I wasn't really into LSD after that well my friends that I trusted had some and I'm like I'll take a half hit I think I can handle a half hit it's gonna be like a microdose that hit me so hard it was unbelievable how a half hit of lsd could have that profound impact on me and fortunately i was with trusted friends great people i was at the connor ober stage that he curated with some amazing musicians first aid kit swedish sisters the felice brothers connor oberst and i remember just thinking i'm just gonna sit here on this hill where i can see the stage i'm gonna lay down and i'm just gonna be in this moment for the rest until this wears off and it must have been 12 to 15 hours and i have a renewed reverence for the how profound and impactful these substances can, substances can be when a half hit can have that level of experience so i've exercised a lot of caution since then with you know a lot of these different molecules as one should when they get into them and don't underestimate their potency so We've kind of touched on everything I wanted to dive into today, but I always have to leave room towards the end of the episode to ask you what you're working on right now that you can share with us, Andrew. Any projects over the next six months that you can speak a little bit about without revealing too much information that you can you know, share? What do we have to look forward to from the Andrew D'Angelo camp? Well, the most important thing I'm still working on is Last Prisoner Project, which is the nonprofit my brother and I started a few years ago. Our mission is to free cannabis prisoners from prison all over the world. And so that work is both challenging because despite raising some money from the community, we've only gotten a small fraction of the people out, but it's also very rewarding because when we do get people out, it's pretty impactful to them and their families. So that's Last Prisoner Project is probably the, the most important thing I'm working on, but I, I make a living like we all do. I, I, I'm a consultant and I'm building cannabis, mostly dispensaries, but also cultivation manufacturing, even little consumption lounges. I'm building various different businesses in various different states all over the country and even got a project in Thailand I'm working on. So, that's really fun where I get to help other entrepreneurs sort of bring their dreams to life uh, and take everything I've learned, you know, from the Harborside experience and, and, and help other people. Mostly, most of my clients are entrepreneurs that want to sort of compete with the MSOs and, and for lack of a better word, corporate cannabis. And, and so they're, they're, we're creating more craft models um, to, to, bring to the marketplace so that's another area and of course my writing i have a column at forbes people can follow me there and you know all the social media channels andrew under slash d'angelo i do a lot of videos a lot of ig lives a lot of cool people from different worlds like meditation and sound baths and psychedelics and things like that that i i host on ig live and we have a nice conversation 
So I try to do as much storytelling as I can. The social justice and the consulting work take the bulk of my time, but I, I, I do manage to carve some out for creative storytelling and, you know, speaking and, and doing podcasts like I am today and just, you know, getting the word out. Awesome. Well, Andrew D'Angelo, thank you so much for all of your continued work in this movement and for especially for the social justice advocacy and drug policy reform advocacy. That's very near and dear to my heart and to a lot of our listeners' hearts as well. So thanks for carving the time out of your schedule to come on the Michaelpreneur podcast. And I'm looking forward to following the trajectory of your ongoing projects. Thank you. It was a great conversation. I really enjoyed myself. Que onda, my friends. Gotta refresh the outro too. So what'd you think of this episode? Drop us a line. Hit the DMs on Instagram at Michaelpreneur Podcast or dare I say TikTok. Yes, we've been engaging in TikTokery as of late. And while I have your attention, Ego Death Magazine is actively soliciting content submissions and recurring contributor roles. Just take a look at the type of content exhibited thus far at www.egodeathmagazine.com to get an idea of what sort of materials we are looking to platform. So don't be a stranger. Bridges, not borders, baby. All right, you take care of yourself now. I'll be seeing you around. Ciao, au revoir, sayonara, and adios, motherfuckers. <laughs>